through the rest of the morning and afternoon for Pastor Mike and Pam. As somebody who's had to teach multiple services on a Sunday morning before, it's about the third time you teach where something interesting happens in your mind. First off, Pastor Mike's dealing with the physical aspect of throwing mud, but then your mind is always saying, have I already said that? Have I already... Where am I at in the message? And so um, be praying for, for them as they minister and for the Mudman crew because this is a large church and I can only imagine what Sunday uh, after the services will look like down there in SoCal. Also for my daughter, I know... Pastor Steve said Mariah Venable. Um, so you get the name right, even though God knows her name is Mariah Walker. That's her married name. So she is married. I want to make that clear right up front. But um, she's been having some preeclampsia. So she's 37 weeks they're confident the baby is in a good state so for her health um, they're going to go ahead and start inducing tomorrow so um, but we expect the baby will be born tomorrow baby Leo Leo Michael I'll give you his name right up front Um, So be praying for them. I appreciate that. This morning we're going to do something slightly different. Um, With my speaking issues that keep progressing with the disease, one of the complaints of my wife early on in my ministry time and teaching was I talk too fast and uh, I read too fast and all that. Now, those of you who are newer to the congregation, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But there was a day where I talked fast and I ate fast and I ran fast and now everything slowed down. So, because of that, and because chapter 10 is 39 verses long, which will take me 12 to 15 minutes to read, um, I'm going to actually have Pastor Steve Miller come up and read the full text for us tomorrow, and then we'll dissect it. As he comes, I want you to know, what great love he has for me and for you, that as a pastor, he would walk in front of the congregation on a Sunday morning and read the Bible without expounding on it, (laughs) right? Especially a chapter like Hebrews 10. So as he comes, open up your Bibles to Hebrews 10. And he's going to go ahead and read 
it for me this morning. I was going to make him stay up here the whole time. But I didn't volunteer for that. I wanted to do the ventriloquist thing and have him sit on my lap. But Michelle and I are so used to this humor. (laughs) All right. We're actually going to pick up, if you would, in uh, chapter 9, verse 27, because, of course, this is a letter. It's written with a flow, and I think that grips the context as we move right into chapter 10. And as is it appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, for, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice An offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offerings of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily the offerings, repeatedly the the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God for that time, for that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnessed to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their heart, and in their minds I will write them. And he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, 
having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the conscious, the confession sorry, of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much Worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were treated, who, who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which, is, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But it... If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in them. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul.
share slightly in a different manner. Much of the first 18 verses are an establishing of that which he's been sharing with us now for nine chapters as we come into chapter 10. And he's kind of wrapping that whole argument up. Remember, the whole argument for the first half of the book of Hebrews is, we've been saying it over and over again, Jesus is greater. No matter what you hold up to him, Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Abraham. The new covenant is great, established in Christ is greater than the old. Been, we've been seeing this argument carry on. And he kind of wraps up his defense of that in these opening verses of Hebrews. And then in verse 19, through the rest of the book of Hebrews, he becomes practical. It's kind of like, now that I've said all that, so what? So what does that mean to you? How then shall you live in light of the truths with which you've been presented? It's a great question for us as we study the Word. Not just on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights, but every time we open up the Word of God, we should always end with the question, so what? What manner of person ought I to be? What manner of life ought I to live in light of the truth of God's word that he just revealed to me? And uh, there are reasons, and I've said this early on, that I lean towards Paulinian authorship of the book of I would not be dogmatic about that. Oh, I guess my voice needs to be amplified this morning. Can you hear me? Am I on now? Okay. Okay, rewind. We had to start over. That wouldn't have made its way to the recording. Um. Surely whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, if it wasn't Paul, was a close companion of Paul because this is very Paulinian in the way the book of Hebrews is written. All of Paul's epistles start with the doctrinal, instructional truths of the Word of God followed in the latter half of the epistle with the so what. So what should I do with this truth now that has been revealed to me? And we see that follow through here in the book of Hebrews as well. So I wouldn't absolutely say Paul's the author. I would say there's a lot of Paulinian influence throughout the book of Hebrews, including the structure and the way um, the word is given. But as we dive into 10, 
We're going to move quickly through the first 18 verses. I'd like to just call attention to a few things. In verse 1, he says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, make those who approach Perfect, And so what he's trying to get across that he's already established is this truth that the Old Testament, Austin, Pastor Austin and Pastor Steve have both touched on this the last two weeks, that in essence, if you can picture in your mind eye the cross, with the radiance of God shining upon it, and it's casting a shadow backwards in time over the Old Testament. You got that in your mind? Because ultimately, that's what the Old Testament was. Everything we're given in the Old Testament was a shadow of that which was to come. It was a shadow or a picture But it was not the very image. Let me give it to you in a modern example. How many of you work with a computer? None of Half of you don't use a computer? Okay. Smartphone. Face ID. It's a beautiful thing. Smartphone. You see these little things on the screen? What are those called? Not icons. They're called icons. The word for image there is the word icon. In the Greek, where we get our word icon. It's an image that represents represents something else. If I look at my phone, I see an icon. And underneath that icon, it says iTunes. Now, is that icon iTunes? No, it's not. It's representative of it. That icon cannot play music for me. I need to touch that icon, open up the actual program or app on your phone phone called iTunes to be able to play the music. It is representative of iTunes, but it is not iTunes. Are you with me? Okay, maybe not. So you, you open up your computer and there is an icon with a W on it. What is that icon for? Microsoft Word. Now, can I just put the cursor over that icon and start typing? No. It's representative of all that word is, but it is not word. 
all that was given in the Old Testament and all the sacrificial offerings and all that were merely a foreshadow or an icon of that which was to come, that being Christ, his life, his sacrifice, his resurrection, our forgiveness of sins through his sacrifice, all of that was a foreshadowing. And yet, that foreshadowing could not make perfect the one who would approach God with those offerings day after day after day. If it could, then the writer says, why then didn't it cease? If it had made them perfect, they wouldn't have needed to continually come back and make offerings because they would have been made perfect or mature or complete through that offering. In reality, the fact that they had to come back day after day after day was a reminder of the sinful state of man and his great need of a Savior. It was all to point us to our need for a Savior. Then as we carry on down into verse 5, he relates this passage where it says, When he, Jesus, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Behold, I come. Listen to this. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. What book would he have been talking about? Huh? What book? What scriptures? Now, catch this. The writer of Hebrews relating to Jesus who came, what scriptures were available in the time of Christ? The Old Testament, not the New Testament. It was being written in and through Christ's life and all the instruction related back to the life of Christ as we look at the epistles. But in the whole of your book, the volume of your book in the Old Testament writings, just another way of saying, I was foreshadowed in the volumes of writings that preceded me. But he says, I came to do your will, O God. And previously saying in verse 8 is really saying this. In saying this, in saying this, in Christ saying these things, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. 
he's essentially saying, though that was a foreshadowing, that isn't the ultimate plan of God. The ultimate plan of God was the sending of his son into this world to die on a cross. And Christ says, in the volumes of the book, this sacrifice was foreshadowed. My coming was foreshadowed. My death was foreshadowed. My resurrection was foreshadowed. The forgiveness of sins of people who would respond, those who are going to be part of those who are being sanctified, is foreshadowed. And he says, I come to do your will. And in verse 10, it says, By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, it's interesting to note in verse 10, it says, By that will, what will? By the will of God the Father. I came to do your will, O God, and by that will we have been sanctified, set apart, cleansed, made new. By by and through the offering. And we see this echo in Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the struggle, right? He says what? Not my will, but your will be done. I would ask you this morning, actually jot down these verses if you're a writer. Near verse 10, jot down Romans 8. 28 through 39. And specifically, um, for me, as I reflect upon the will of God, the question is posed in that passage, for if God did not spare his only son, what wouldn't he do for you, for me? What could possibly separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus if he wouldn't even spare his own son? Now let me pause there as we go through this. You have to transport yourself back to those that would have been reading this. These are Hebrews that have been under intense persecution. Increased persecution from society around them. Persecution from the Jews as well. They're living in a time not much unlike our time. The only difference is, here in the United States, we're not being put to death for Christianity yet. Yet, around this world, every day, people die for their faith in Christ. It's not much unlike the world we live in. 
And so he's establishing these truths because there's been this pattern of shrinking back, moving away, in the midst of the flame to move away from the heat to protect themselves, to make a life easier. And he continues to make his appeal saying, if God didn't spare his only son, as it were in Romans, what wouldn't he do for you? I believe that by that will we have been sanctified is to help them see it was God's will through which Christ died. You ask the question, who put Jesus on the cross? And some would say the Romans, and some would say you and me because of our sins. But ultimately, if we study the scriptures, we find out it was the will of the Father that sent the Son to the cross to die for forgiveness of you. And me. And every priest that says in verse 11 stands. In verses 11 through 14, I took note of the words every priest stands ministering daily. But in verse 12, reflecting of Jesus, it says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice, for sins forever sat down. While the priests are scurrying about making offerings daily for the sins of the people, Jesus, once he had made one sacrifice, that sacrifice being himself, sat down, hearkening to the words on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. And from that time he sits waiting till his enemies are made his footstools. And Hebrews 7.25 earlier says not only that, but he's ever interceding on yours and my behalf as our lawyer, as our advocate before the Father. Verse 15, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into into their heart. And in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. The writer, reflecting back earlier to Psalm 40, now reflects to Jeremiah. Let me read that Jeremiah passage to you in its entirety, because it lends greater insight. Beginning in verse 33, or actually 31 of Jeremiah 31, we would read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel 
and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. He says, I'm going to make a new covenant. That's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to establish and has been trying to establish all along that this new covenant was foreshadowed in the Old Testament writings, even right here in Jeremiah, hearkening to the words of the Lord, I'm going to make a new covenant, unlike the old covenant, totally separate, new, different. And so he says, that he will write his laws on their hearts and in their minds, and their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. And in verse 18, he writes, Now where there is remission of these, their sins and their lawless deeds, there is no longer an offering from, for sin, which is better rendered no need of further offering. Once Christ went to the cross, there's no need of any further offerings. He offered himself once for all. And when you have received forgiveness through Christ and your sins and lawless deeds have been remitted through his blood, There is no other offering you need to make. No other offering you can make. If I could sum up these initial verses, it would be this. Stop trying to work your way to the Father through your own efforts. That which had been established in the past was nothing more than a skeleton, a shadow, an icon of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And now that you've come to the fullness of the realization of that work of Christ in your life, do not now revert back to trying to work your way into God's good graces through your own efforts. You have no need to continue to make sacrifices. You need to get your thinking flipped over. You see, under the Old Testament, you came to make sacrifices 
of your life and out of your life to be right with God. In the New Testament, you're already right with God. And whatever sacrifices you make is that a loving response to that which he already did for you. Does that make sense this morning? No. Thank you. You can respond, really. So that becomes the culmination of the argument that's been going, been being put forth now through ten and a half chapters of the book of Hebrews. And then picking up in verse 19, we see a major transition. It's almost like in geometry, which was my least favorite mathematics class, proofs and all that kind of thing. But, uh, and I did go all the way through calculus four and finite automaton, building mathematical machines, and to this day I would tell you my least favorite was geometry. But when you did proofs in geometry, and you finished out your proof, all the writing, to prove whatever mathematical truth you were trying to establish, you wrote three letters at the end of it. Who knows what those letters are? Q, E, D. Is Latin for something, which basically means I'm done. That's what it means. I'm done. I'm finished. End of proof. Well, that's where we've gotten to now in the book of Hebrews. It's almost like there's an invisible QED between verses 18 and 19. And now he's going to say, let's talk about what manner of life you ought now to live in light of the truth that's been established. So he says, therefore, therefore, we ask why is it there? In light of everything I've just shared with you for ten and a half chapters in our Bible, but the totality of the words represented there to the reader. He says, therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, as opposed to the blood of goats and bulls and rams, and birds. We can have boldness to enter into the presence of God. Remember, in the Old Testament times, there was only one that could enter into the literal presence of God as was represented to them, and that was the high priest once a year stepping behind the veil 
into the holy of holies, the holiest place, to offer up blood for the sins of the people, first for himself and then for the people. But that blood was the blood of bulls and goats. But now Christ, as our high priest, has entered in. And remember, when Christ was crucified, the veil between the the holy place and the holiest of holies was rent in two from the top down, not from the bottom up, exposing, as it were, the holy of holies. And Christ's body was rent for us that through his blood, his perfect blood offered once and only once for our forgiveness. Now, because of that blood, not because of something that's inherent within us, but because of the blood of Christ, we can enter in boldly into the holiest place. Not based on the blood of bulls and goats, as it were in Old Testament times, but upon the blood of Jesus by a new and living way in opposition to the old way and alive evermore in Christ, which he consecrated for us through the veil the veil being his flesh, it says in the text. His flesh rent for you and I, that we, through his shed blood, now can enter into the presence of God the Father with boldness and in essence revert back to the very beginning. Remember when God created Adam and Eve, It says that God would come and talk with them. They would be in the presence of the Father, and then sin separated that and caused us as sinful man to not have that kind of access to the Father, but through the renting of Christ's body and the shedding of his blood. We now can enter in boldly into the presence of God. And having a high priest, this one Christ, who he established as truth in verses, I mean chapter 6 and 7 and part of 8. He gives us three rapid-fire instructions. Because of all of that, number one, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from evil, an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with water. So he says, let us draw near. In the Old Testament, there was still separation. The people could not draw near. They were drawn near to the Father through 
the work of the high priest, and it was only the high priest, in essence, once a year who could draw near. But now, through the work of Christ, we are enabled to now draw near. So let us draw near with a true or sincere heart. One that isn't feigning faith, but rather a heart full of assurance in faith, in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Believing fully, as we believed in the beginning, he's going to say, but for you and I believing fully, that when Christ said it is finished, it is finished. We don't draw near to God through now through our own efforts, but we draw near to God in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled, as it were, by the blood of Christ, our conscience made clean and our bodies washed pure. So let us draw near to God. He says in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's one thing to respond to God and to draw near to him. But in the heat of this life, in the heat of this culture that we live in that is increasingly becoming anti-Christian, we need to be those people that not only draw near but hold fast to Christ. Hold fast the confession of our hope. Some translations say the confession of our faith, but a better rendering is of our hope. And I would say to you this morning, is your hope resting securely on Christ and Christ alone? The anchor of your soul, as it says earlier in the book of Hebrews. Where does your hope lie today? Is it fully in Christ? Hold fast to that confession of hope without wavering, without waffling, without doubting. Hold fast. And if you need some assurance, know that he who promised you have a secure hope in Christ always keeps his promises. He cannot lie. So let us draw near with a true heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And then in verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching 
Let us consider one another to stir each other up in love and good works. Now that word for stir up is a word like provoke. And provoke is kind of like this. Hey, hey, hey. Provoke. You might ask the question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, we are our brother and sister's keeper. We are called by the Lord to be used as iron sharpens iron in one another's life, stirring each other up in in love and good works. To be there to exhort one another, which, Jeff, you'll like this, exhortation is encouragement with a cattle prod. That's exhortation. Not just encourage one another, but to be there to be used of the Lord to keep each other moving forward in the faith. That is our job as brothers and sisters, not obnoxiously, unless called for, but to be there. To encourage, to exhort, to stir up, to provoke one another in love and good works. And I would ask the question, how can you do that and forsake the assembling together? You see, this instruction, the whole point of coming together on Sunday mornings, two reasons as I see it. One, to give God the worship he deserves. We don't come here to get. We come here to give. We don't come into the pews and go, okay, pastor, I drug myself out of bed this morning. You better bring it this morning because, man, I drug myself out of bed. Give me, give me, give me, give me. If that's why you came here this morning, let me burst your bubble. That's not why we come to church on Sundays. We come no matter what has gone on during the week. The very fact that we stand here or you sit there, this is backwards. You should be standing. I should be sitting. We come here. We're still breathing. Christ is still on the throne. He's still working in our lives. He's still the same yesterday and today and forever. He's still trustworthy. He's still there to minister to us in our hour of need. His grace is sufficient. His mercies are new every morning. Nothing has changed other than circumstances and situations in this temporal world and we come to raise our hands and say God you are worthy of our worship and we assemble together to corporately do that and secondly we assemble together 
to minister one to another. To stir one another up, exhort, provoke, encourage one another in love and good works. You might say, well, pastor, I don't like people. And my response is, get over it. Because you're going to spend eternity with myriads of people. You might as well start learning how to be around people now. Not forsaken in assembly together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one and so much more, as you see the day approaching. And then, parenthetically, he now says, look, we need to be those people that are drawing near to God, holding fast the confession of our, our hope and considering one another to stir one another up in love and good works. But there are some of you who have drawn back and turned aside from the way. And in verse 26, he says, For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation. Let's pause there. If we willfully sin... What is being referred to here, let's keep it in context, okay? He's not talking about the fact that somebody got up this morning and made a choice to do something that they knew wasn't right. I know none of you did that this morning. All of you drove the speed limit, hit the brakes when the light turned yellow, as opposed to meaning go faster. Nobody did anything wrong. I know you didn't this morning. But there may be times in your life where even though you know you're not supposed to do something, you do it. And in that sense, you willfully committed that sin. You made a choice. But that's not what's being related to here. He's relating this to what is given in verse 29, where it says, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy of who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. In other words, though you were once illuminated and once made a choice to say, I believe in Christ, I am now turning away from that. I'm casting that aside. And I'm no longer following that as the truth of my life. And in that sense, you've now trampled the sacrifice of Christ 
under your feet. You've counted the blood that he shed as no different than the blood of bulls and goats. And you have insulted the testimony of the Holy Spirit who bears witness every moment of every day of the sacrifice of Christ. That's the willful sin he's talking about. Let me give you an example of what is happening here. On January 4th, the year 2000, I had the blessing of showing up at the Superdome in New Orleans and walking in with a ticket hanging around my neck to the national championship game between Florida State University and Michael Vick in Virginia Tech. That ticket gave me entry into that game. I still have that ticket somewhere. I went looking for it to make sure you didn't think I was lying this morning, but I can't find it. But my wife will bear testimony of the fact that four of us not her, who went to the game. Now on January 7th, 2019, there's going to be another national championship play. Don't know who's going to be in it yet, but on that day, there will be a national championship game. Now I was thinking what I should do is pull out that ticket, fly to the game, and show up and say, I have a ticket to the national championship game. You should let me in. Now if I show up with my ticket from the year 2000, I'm pretty sure I'm not getting the game in 2019. And if I obnoxiously press the issue, I'm probably going to be escorted off in handcuffs because I'm not getting in. There was one prescribed ticket that will get me in that game. And it's not a ticket from 18, 19 years ago. There was a way we approached God in the Old Testament. But when Christ came, he made a new covenant and a new way. And though that ticket of offering up bulls and goats could still exist. It's not getting me into the game. There's one ticket that gets me into that game. And that ticket has a name. It's Jesus Christ. And I get in on his merit, in his righteousness, through his blood. 
it doesn't matter. And if I willfully try to go back to some system by which I can earn favor with God and have my sins covered, and I cast aside the one way that God has established as the way in which I can enter into his presence, I'm now willfully committing a sin for which there would be no recovery except repentance. Because if I rely on myself, that's going to come up short. So if we willfully, after we have received the knowledge of truth, we willfully sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice. And in verse 31, it truly is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God if you're trusting in your own efforts to justify yourself. But oh, how glorious to, it is to fall into the hands of the living God covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And wrapping up, the last point that we would pull out of the latter verses is in verse 36, for you have need of endurance. Endurance is the mark of a Christian. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. Quoting from Habakkuk, the writer says, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. You might say a little while. Would he just hurry up? Reminds me of when we used to camp with our kids and they, we'd be traveling along the road and they say, are we there yet? And I say, no, when are we going to get there? Ten minutes. And 40 minutes later, they'd say, are we there yet? No, when are we going to get there? Ten minutes. Okay, I think your ten minutes doesn't equal my 10 minutes, but my view was different than theirs. In light of the three weeks where we're going to be gone, this time of traveling seems like 10 minutes for yet a little while. And he who is coming will come and will not tarry. And then in verse 38 it says, Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him drawing back, meaning sinning willfully by returning back to some other means of approaching God. That verse, the just shall live by faith, is used three other times besides where it is given in Habakkuk. It's used in Galatians 3.11. But that usage is focused on 
the just. When it says, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident that the just shall live by faith. The second place is in Romans, but there it's focused on the by faith. Wherein it says, for in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And here in Hebrews, I believe the focus is on the shall live. How shall we live? He's talking about this new life that has come to us through Christ. The just shall live by faith. And he closes out the chapter with an exhortation of belief to them when he writes, but we are not of those who draw back. Amen? This morning, we are not of those who draw back to the old ways of doing things, to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Amen? So let us draw near to God. Let us hold fast. And let us consider one another. As we close, it's interesting as you look at those three exhortations. The first one is to direct is directed toward God. Let us draw near to God. The second one is an exhortation for us internally to hold fast. And the third one is then to focus us outwards to minister to others. God, establishing our hearts upon him and being used of him in the lives of others. Amen? Worship team, come on up. Father, we thank you for this.